Welcome in once again to the Talking Tide podcast. I am Chase Goodbread of NFL.com and Crimson Cover Television, Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com, and Southern Fried Sports Radio, which you can catch at 102.9 FM in Tuscaloosa with you. The Talking Tide podcast available at Podbean.com. Also, various apps including iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Of course, uh, the SEC Championship Sunday nighter uh, this evening for you. Travis and I, uh, of course, breaking down Alabama's 35-28 to thriller of a win over uh, the Georgia Bulldogs. And, of course, uh, toward the latter part of the program, we'll dive into the CFP matchups just a little bit. Uh, but, Travis, uh, conversation definitely begins with Jalen Hurts. Uh, what a remarkable opportunity for him first and then a remarkable performance to follow it up with. Uh, kind of storybook stuff of legend type stuff. Uh, not even if you're an Alabama fan, but a fan of college football in, in general. It's uh, stuff of lore, I guess, right? Yeah, seldom does the sequel live up to the original, right? Uh, we saw that with Caddyshack 2 and the original Caddyshack. Well, this was befitting. It was uh, worthy of the original that we saw just 11 months ago right there in that very same building. Surreal, Chase. I think that's the best way to describe it if you were there for both games because I'm sitting there in the press box and I'm watching Jalen Hurts get this team into the end zone to tie the game there uh, about uh, midway or even later in the fourth quarter. And I think to myself, Alabama is going to beat Georgia in a championship game with its backup quarterback for the second time in 11 months. It just seemed improbable, but at the same time, it seemed very possible because we had just seen it happen. Uh, And sure enough, Jalen Hurts and the offense, the defense too, give the defense a lot of credit because initially Jake Fromm and Georgia just lit up UA, especially on third downs. I I think Georgia was five of seven. Uh, on their first seven thirds and then finish the game 0 for 9. So you got to credit the team as a whole uh, on, on in all three phases, uh, especially in that second half, but uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you could put that one on a marquee at a theater uh, starring Jalen Hurts and, and you could sell tickets for days. And you know, you're happy for Jalen Hurts because as we've heard and, and we've said, you know, this is a guy who certainly didn't have to hang around. Uh, this season, but he did. His opportunity came. He was more than ready. Uh, and boy, did Alabama ever benefit from it. Not to get sidetracked slightly from the game, but as you mentioned, Travis, you were there. You were in the press box. I've got a, a question I had last night from the couch uh, was at what point did the MVP ballots get collected along, yeah, pr- along press row? Because a lot of bowl games – uh, you, you, I, you know, I've covered. I've seen him get, you know, collected with 12, 10, 12 minutes to go in the game. I, there have been championship games, too, like that, although usually not that early. But when I saw that, that Hertz did not win the MVP, I'm thinking, well, I, I, there's one explanation for that, and it's, and it's that early pickup, right? It was. Um, you basically had to do it online, and there was literally like a countdown clock. Uh, that you had to submit your ballot and it obviously was before what you saw from Jalen Hurts on those final two possessions because it would have been an absolute slam dunk no-brainer but at the time 
that the votes had to be submitted. I mean, the choices were pretty much. I had Josh Jacobs uh, for Alabama, uh, and then you, you know Jake Fromm uh, of Georgia. But yeah, that's exactly what it was, Chase. Yeah. Um, the ballots had already been submitted. You know, it almost be like not waiting until after the game to do that would almost be like voting for the Heisman before championship Saturday, right? I mean, I, I, I'm, I haven't had it explained to me adequately by a bowl official or, or a championship game official why it's, why it's got to be done. Now, I, I understand they want to be able to put uh, some kind of a, um, you know, so, some kind of little trophy in the hand of, of whoever it is post game as part of the, you know, the, the stage drama uh, where everybody's up on stage and, and handshakes are, are flying back and forth. Uh, but if it means getting it right, then, then why not just put all that stuff off an extra 10 minutes or whatever, however you do? Oh, especially in a championship game, okay? If it's the Tax Slayer Bowl, then you, know, you can go ahead and get that one at the half for all anybody cares, all right? But <laughs> end of the first quarter, we need ballots, guys. Yes. Yeah. You know, go ahead and get those in. But I agree. When you're talking about a conference championship game, um, or certainly a CFP type uh, game, it, it would make a lot more sense to wait. And, and I think you're right. I think they want to go ahead and have it, you know, tabulated and, and ready to go for the podium and the post game and all that. But uh, man, with the way some of these games come down to the wire, like the last two Alabama games have, uh, you know, I would think you would want to wait. Although, you know, I guess Tua playing the whole second half didn't preclude him from being the CFP championship game uh, MVP, at least on the offensive side of the ball. But, you know, Jalen's work happened in essentially 11 minutes time of the fourth quarter, and and he got got, uh, squeezed out by the clock there on that one. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, his his performance, uh, you know, it was the throw to Waddle was where you knew this 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 could end up going Alabama's way. Uh, I'm talking about the deep throw along the sideline after Hertz had kind of bailed the pocket. We've seen a we and you know we, yep. there'd been a lot of those uh, bailouts toward the sideline that end up in the third row. Uh, but but this one hit a huge play and and I think uh, uh, kind of changed the changed the tone of things a little bit. Yeah, and I think if you were sort of skeptical about Jalen's improvement in the last year, I think what you just talked about was more proof that he has improved. Because as we've talked about on the podcast many, many times in the past, Jalen flushes to the right, Jalen runs out of bounds, Jalen ditches into the third row. Well, he didn't do that uh, on Saturday. He kept his eyes up the field, tried to make plays, while on the move, and you're right, the pass to Jalen Waddle, who, by the way, was absolutely huge in the game. Every catch Jalen Waddle made seemed to be uh, critical. At least three of the four he had were huge uh, in Alabama winning that game Saturday evening. Uh, and then the touchdown pass to uh, Jerry Judy on a on a third and ten. And and you think, well, it's third down. You know, he's going to make a, an attempt there. Well, we've seen Jalen on third downs in the past either run out of bounds or ditch. Well, he, he didn't. 
and uh, delivered an absolute strike to Jerry Judy for the touchdown. So improvement is obvious. If you really want to see it, if you uh, if you've already given up on Jalen Hurts, then there's no sense talking to you about it. Um, but if you're open to it, you can see it on that. And then also, you know, th- those throws in the middle of the field to Irv Smith Jr. on those last two drives, yep. those are throws that Jalen hadn't always been really fond of, of sort of letting loose. Uh, kind of uh, hesitant to maybe, you know, let it rip over the middle of the field. We'll kind of parlay that uh, with the end of the kind of dovetail into the Tungvaloa situation. The worst game we've seen him play, no question about it, Travis. Uh, the first time we've – it's the first time in his career we've seen him struggle from quarter to quarter to quarter uh, as opposed – you know, we, we've seen him have a rough quarter here and there, uh, but just was not on target. I don't – I think he saw a couple of things late. I think his – pocket I, I think his sense of the pass rush was just not there from the beginning which is unusual because I've seen him um, show great awareness of the rush around him in terms of the way he moves around and, and makes decisions uh, this game uh, it, it, I don't know I got the, I got the sense that that he hung around the pocket too long uh, on some balls that should have been thrown away or or, or you know, things like that uh, just just kind of plagued him. I thought he was trying to do too much from the outset, Chase. Um, and I had people, I had someone say, well, it looked like he was trying to win the Heisman Trophy uh, in one game. And I don't think it was that. I think, I think Tua has the utmost confidence in himself and his receivers um, and sort of riding on what you just said. Um, you know, that tends to lead to him maybe uh, not being as aware or maybe spending a little bit too much time with the ball in his hands and waiting too long for things bigger down the field to open up. And as we know, I mean, with his skill set and his arm talent, he's not afraid to take some chances in the middle of the field, and that's where he paid for it. You know, he, he waited a little too long on one interception there in the second half uh, in the third quarter. And then on that opening possession after the Jalen Waddle punt return, he just got a little greedy. You know, it's third and long in uh, what started out as a first and goal at about the six. I mean, there was a lot you could question about that opening possession. Um, you know, Damian Harris runs it 14 yards down to the six, and then you immediately go to the air on first and goal. Um, and give Georgia a lot of credit on that first and goal because that was an RPO to Henry Ruggs in which the defensive back made a heck of a pass breakup. But then on second down, um, you know, he holds the ball too long, a little too greedy there, takes a sack. And then third down, forces the ball in the middle of the field, throws the pick to Richard LeCount. So that's what I go back to in in watching the game on Sunday again. He isn't as bad about checking the ball down as maybe some people would lead you to believe, but he was. He was on Saturday. He had several opportunities in the flat, especially Chase, even on the play that he was injured on in the in the fourth quarter. Um, he's got Josh Jacobs in the flat with about a 10-yard cushion, and he just didn't want to go there with the ball a lot on Saturday. You know, one of the few knocks on A.J. McCarron's game at, at early in his career, before he'd had game, a lot of game experience, and Nick Saban had mentioned this, was that, he 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 wants everything to be a huge play and just doesn't like to check it down. We saw, I, I, as I recall, uh, the, the first handful of starts uh, or more for McCarron 
kind of the same way, kind of kind of a refusal to just take the the cheap profit when it's there. Yeah, and when you got a guy like Josh Jacobs, I mean, you, you got to do it. I mean, because the easiest of checkdowns can turn into a huge play. Um, really, all of Alabama's backs capable of doing that, and and I think that was kind of the issue for Alabama's team as a whole, and even maybe from a coaching standpoint, um, just trying to hit the home run uh, a little too much uh, in the first half. You had a drop by Jerry Judy, which you typically don't see, that that could have gone for a touchdown there in the red zone. Um, Irv Smith Jr. on on the deep ball in the middle of the field there in the first quarter with a drop. Uh, It just seemed like Alabama, uh, even on the the punt block that Alabama went after late in the first half with an opportunity to get the ball back with great field position and time to do something with it there at the end of the second quarter, runs into the punter. Um, You know, I just, again, I kind of go back to the mindset maybe being that, you know, every maybe multiple people involved from the Alabama perspective trying to win the game on one play instead of being maybe a little bit more patient and letting it play out that's what we saw in the second half and the results I think were a good bit better speaking of punts uh how about fake punts gotta gotta, (laughs) (laughs) gotta touch on that uh Kirby Smart with Kirby. a call that is going to go Oof. down as one of the most questioned calls in Georgia football history, mm. uh, I, no, there's there's no doubt about that. Now, does that does that mean there's, you know, look, it looked bad to me. I I, I just I didn't get it from any perspective. Kirby, what yeah. what what I and if you heard Kirby's response to the question after the game. I don't remember it word for word, but what I got out of it was Kirby was basically thinking, "Look, if we pull this off, we can keep the ball. We don't have to. We we don't have to give them the ball back, or didn't think they'd have to." Um, yeah, it was weak. I mean, Kirby in his post game comments essentially threw the long snapper under the bus. If you have to throw the long snapper under the bus, <laughs> then it probably wasn't a good call. Okay, if you're if you're if you're uh, you know commiserating about the fact that the long snapper didn't snap the ball fast enough well it wasn't there then you know i mean if the fake is that damn good you know you you can run it with the with the punt punt coverage team out there punt return team out there for 30 seconds and you're gonna get them if you're counting on uh speedballing somebody like uh (laughs) nick saban likes to call it then it probably wasn't the right call. And, and you you probably saw this on the TV coverage. You could see it from the press box. Alabama's sideline was all over it. I mean, they were screaming, jumping up and down. Put it this way. There was one Alabama staffer that saw it so early with Justin Fields. When you put your backup quarterback in as the punt protector, yeah. you know somebody might smell a rat. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, and Alabama's sideline did. And I saw one Alabama staffer in particular – he saw it so early, Chase. He was waving Jalen Waddle to come up mm-hmm. to be an extra defender against him. <laughs> so don't throw the don't throw the long snapper under the bus. And you're right, man. which was a great instinct too, because you know a lot of yeah. guys a, a lot of guys might be thinking, hey, uh, you, you know, let, let's make sure we got the front set right uh, and, and move this guy eight inches into another yeah. shade. Uh, hell, just tell Waddle to just blitz, basically. You know? Yeah, that's what that's what they were doing. <laughs> And they saw it so early. Um, so, you know, it, let's always throw the poor long snapper under the bus, though, when it doesn't go right. You know, guy's probably not even on scholarship, you know. 
Um, but you're right. The temperature coming from the east has been a little warm today in regards to that. I don't know. You know Chip Towers. He's covered Georgia forever over there. Uh, I read his column on it on, uh, I think it's Dog Nation or something, part of the ADC. He referred to the call as stupid. He called it. Uh, Mince no words, Chip, did he? Yeah, stupid, he called it. Oh, It was bad. It, it, yeah. it was definitely hard to understand. It was hold sure. my beer and watch this is what it was. You know what it was, good bread? You know how you used to play basketball against your old man in the driveway? By God, <laughs> you were going to do whatever you had to do to get over the top, yeah. you know, of beating the old man or your big brother or yeah, something like sure. that, you know. And you would go to no ends to, to do it. Well, that was Kirby yeah. with three minutes to go yesterday on Saturday. That was – you know, you saw the movie The Great Santini, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, the basketball scene in the driveway. And you turned me on to that movie. I, I would have uh, never great. seen it. If you haven't seen The Great Santini, you, you, you've, you know, uh, what, what's our boy's name? Bull, uh, the dad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robert Duvall, anyway, is outstanding in it. Watch the, go, you know, pull it up on Netflix, whatever you got to do. But that's what that was. That was the driveway basketball scene between the kid and Bull, Meacham there you know and 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 the kid was finally gonna get over on the old man and uh we we saw how it turned out yeah uh for sure a play that uh uh kind of sparked things for alabama but really uh as you mentioned even bigger than that was that georgia's last six possessions i think yielded no points yeah Uh, and that's why you got to give the defense a lot of credit um because the defense really did keep Alabama in it, you know, when it when it didn't look good, and um, and, and then and then Waddle breathes uh, some life into the to the offense with that 51 yard catch and run to cut it to 28 21. But even that comes after another snafu for Georgia in the kicking game. I mean, Rodrigo Blankenship does not miss from 30 yards out, Chase. No. He just does not. And in a 28-14 game and a chance to go up three scores, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and that was obviously a huge part of things as well. And, you know, I know we're kind of bouncing all around and, and, and you know, we're usually more about the offense-defense. But if I had told you going into that game Saturday – Alabama's not only going to play Georgia even in special teams, Alabama's actually going to come out with the edge. I, I don't know if you would have believed it. No, and you know what? You, we, we've hardly touched on special teams all season here on the podcast, and the, and, I, and the reason is primarily because this Georgia game was the first game Alabama's played in where special teams could make the difference in a W or an L late in the game. It, it's not been under that situation all year until this until this game. No, it hasn't. But Alabama, you know, other than running into the punter, which was horrific at the time that it happened because it was set up perfectly, Alabama had no business going for the punt block there for a couple reasons. First of all, you've got them backed up, and you've got an offense that you know, even if it hasn't happened a lot to that point in the game on Saturday, is capable of scoring, you know, covering 50 yards in 30 seconds with no problem. So time isn't a problem. There's no need for you to be in block mode from a time standpoint. Also, you have a punt returner who already in the game has come up big with a return of, what, nearly 40 yards in Jalen Waddell? Yeah. 
You can set up the return. You can do everything but put yourself in a position where on a fourth and short play, you you even run into the punter and give up five yards in a first down. So, but but other than that blemish, yeah, I, it it really went Alabama's way uh, in the kicking game. And I give Joseph Bulova some credit too. Some of those directional pooch kicks that he had, um, th- they worked out perfectly. Now the return by Hardman there late in the game, uh, preceding Georgia's final possession, that wasn't necessarily great. Hardman though, you just you got to give that guy a lot of credit. I mean, when it comes to returning the football, he's as good as anybody in the game. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, uh, defensively for Alabama, Travis, just maybe individually a couple of names that stuck out to you uh, in this one. Obviously, Quinnen Williams, again, uh, made his presence felt early, ends up with eight stops, uh, a sack, and and two for loss. It's kind of started with him all season, uh, but there's some pretty stout performances all around him. Yeah, there, there were, and, and Quinnen got it going early with the sack. And you know, we talked about it last week that you know there were there was a, a good chance that both he and Raquan Davis were going to be getting a crack at a true freshman at that right guard position for Georgia, and that's how it played out. And Quinnen wasted no time in taking advantage of that on the third down sack of Fromm to on that opening possession for the Dogs. But you know, um, it wasn't maybe the dominant performance statistically that we've seen on occasion from this Alabama defensive line. Quinnen did his thing, had two tackles for loss, um, the sack, uh, but just two sacks and five tackles for loss for Alabama in the game. But similar to just about every other aspect of this team, when the game was on the line, they came up big. Quinnen had a big tackle for loss uh, in the fourth quarter. Um, Raquan Davis didn't get credit for a quarterback hurry, but on Georgia's final possession, he got enough heat on Fromm to sort of force him up into the pocket where LeBron Ray was able to make uh, a big sack. And, you know, Isaiah Bugs, he had four tackles in the game chase, but watching him, you could tell that knee was not entirely what it needs to be. He was kind of dragging that left leg around throughout the game. Uh, so a gutty performance, I guess, is how I would describe it. Uh, for the Alabama defensive line. Solid throughout the game. Georgia especially effective, I thought, on the ground in the first half. But again, second half, almost a carbon copy of the game back in January, Alabama took care of business uh, from that standpoint in the third and fourth quarters. I'll give you another name, too. I think Shyam Carter is playing with more confidence oh, yeah. the last couple of games. And and, and you know, he's around the ball more. And that can mean two things. That can mean you're playing better. It can also mean you're getting thrown at more. And usually there's a reason for that. So just because you're around the ball more uh, doesn't necessarily tip it. But he's been around the ball more and made plays. Uh, you know, he, he's, uh, I guess, three more pass breakups. Yeah. And this one, I, I think he, he leads the team in that category now. Uh, he's he seems to kind of be coming into his own here late in the year a little bit. He is. Uh, I think it's the second straight game with three pass breakups. And you're right. When the game was on the line, he was one of those guys you could tell. I mean, he wanted to be in coverage. He wanted to be maybe coming from that star position on a blitz. Um, and, and he was really impactful in the game in, in both ways. Uh, both in coverage with a couple of pass breakups and then coming on a blitz. Um, he had a pass breakup that way uh, as well. Thought he did a really good job. You know, Fromm threw for over 300 yards in the game, and he went to nine different receivers. 
And, and his wide receivers were good, don't get me wrong. I think Fromm was even better for most of the game. I mean, you talk about accuracy uh, and timing and everything else that, that was on point. Fromm was exactly that. But, you know, he didn't have a wide receiver uh, go for more than 48 receiving yards in the game. Now, Isaac Nada, the tight end, obviously had a couple of big plays. Uh, and the backs, DeAndre Swift was a big part of the passing game as well. But, you know, Savion Smith, you talk about a guy that gets targeted. <laughs> Savion Smith gets targeted not only in the passing game. Teams look to run at Savion Smith's side of the field. You know, with the perimeter success that some teams have had in the last three or four weeks of the season to that side of the field, it seems like. Yep. Um uh, you know, Savion ended up with, what, 11 tackles? And I give the guy credit because teams do keep going at him, but he responds, you know, the way you would like to see a corner respond. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're, and, and I think we've, we've kind of seen that developing uh, more in the last few games as well. Obviously, uh, um, the, the, the Diggs injury midseason kind of kind of tossed uh, Savion back into a, a bigger role. Uh, but he's competitive. Uh, you kind of you kind of get the sense that he he knows it. He he senses it, and and is uh, and doing everything he can to respond. Uh, but uh, you know it, it's uh, talking about weapons like what Georgia's got to throw at you in various ways. Uh, you know Swift can get the corner on just about anybody sometimes, but uh, no doubt about it, uh, Georgia looking Smith's way. In this one, the Talking Tide podcast at podbean.com continues. Chase Goodbread, Travis Ryer with you for a little bit longer. We're going to take a little bit of a look at the CFP matchups before we close things out here on this edition. But first, uh, we're going to thank a couple of sponsors, uh, starting with Urban Cookhouse, the outstanding farm-to-fire-to-table restaurant at 1490 North Bank Parkway, right off of Rice Mine Road. Vince Hunter and his crew are over there cooking it up uh, in those big green egg smokers, sandwiches, wraps, some fork and knife meals. you got to try uh, and the convenience can't be beaten of course they've got that pickup window for carry out orders excuse me call in orders and uh, uh the phone number there of course 561-6999 it's urban cookhouse we also want to thank north river dental associates and dr jack smalley a, a charter sponsor of the talking tide podcast dr jack and his bunch take care of your teeth in a first-class way from top to bottom, state-of-the-art office, a caring staff, whatever you need, whether it's a routine cleaning or advanced implant treatments, give them a call at 752-3506. You can go to NorthRiverDentist.com on the web for an appointment. It's North River Dental and Dr. Dax Smalley. I'm going to tell you about Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa out there at 3200 Skyland Boulevard East. It is that time to make the run through the postseason. If you're an Alabama fan, no better way to do it than with an automobile from Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa. Check out the website right now, mercedesoftuscaloosa.com. You're going to want to do that for a couple of reasons. Right now, they've got the winter event going on at Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa, so all the details are there for you on the website. And also, you can check out the entire inventory of automobiles as they sit on the lot today at mercedesoftuscaloosa.com. Go to mercedesoftuscaloosa.com right now and then this week 
Make your way to 3200 Skyland Boulevard East for the very best in selection, sales, and service after the sale. It is Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa. Also want to tell you about our great friends at Cartier and Lloyd Attorneys at Law right there in downtown Tuscaloosa. That's where you're going to find Mike Cartier and John Lloyd, a pair of local attorneys who have a combined 60-plus years of legal experience between them. Give them a call right now, 205-759-1554. They also have a great website, www.cartlloydlaw.com. Whether it's an automobile accident, whether it's a personal injury situation uh, that required an accident report, you want to call 205-759-1554. That's going to put you in touch with Car-T and Lloyd, attorneys at law. Talking Tide podcast at podbean.com rolls on. You can also get it at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. Give us a follow on Twitter at uh, talking underscore Tide. Travis, uh, I guess we'll quickly uh, discuss a conference championship Saturday, although uh, what what's ahead in terms of CFP matchups probably foremost on people's minds. A lot of, a lot of outcomes that, that you just kind of knew coming from all, all week long elsewhere on championship Saturday. Yeah, you know, it was sort of anticlimactic compared to what you had uh, certainly in Atlanta. Uh, but maybe from the Heisman perspective, we should touch on it too, Chase. Did Kyler Murray – do enough with uh, Tua Tonga-Vailoa not doing very much at all on Saturday to kind of swing that thing uh, in the favor of the Oklahoma quarterback. And then now we find out we're going to get a head-to-head matchup of Tua and Kyler Murray, assuming Tua is good to go from that ankle injuries. I guess you could make it plural uh, with what Tua dealt with in the game on Saturday. By the way, Nick Saban, uh, on Sunday, indicating that Tua looks like he's headed or has had already the sort of procedure done that Jalen Hurts had following the Tennessee game about a month or so ago. What about it from a Heisman perspective? Because, you know, Oklahoma obviously did enough in taking care of business, uh, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it? After Oklahoma beat Texas on Saturday, you weren't going to find bigger Alabama fans in, in the United States than, than Oklahoma people because they really, really needed Alabama to take care of business and not occupy uh, one of two spots by the SEC if, had they lost that game to Georgia. But um, what do you think? You think this thing, uh, from a Heisman perspective, is more Kyler Murray than Tua at this point? I've been paying attention to the Heisman Trophy and the voting and, and the winners and the losers and and, and all this stuff. I mean, I've, you know – since I was a little kid, I mean, I you know, I've I've seen a I've seen a lot of these situations where people wonder if a late performance or a or a late surge in a season over two or three games can overtake a season long favorite. And if we're just looking at it from that, you know, in an abstract way like that, I, I think Tungavaloa wins it all day. I think I think more times than not, the guy who's kind of been uh, uh, assumed to be the front runner from wire to almost wire that guy is going to win it over the late rush guy uh just about every time but that being said uh, if there was an ever a good argument travis for the heisman trophy to, to to just hold off until uh until all the the postseason action was done uh it, it's this year and this argument yeah i think it's tight man i think it definitely got at least tighter if it didn't tip towards uh 
towards Kyler Murray. Um, you know, I, I think, and you know this, and and you kind of touched on it with what you said. It, it all depends on when people vote too. You know, did you vote before championship Saturday? If you're a Heisman voter, I, I know I wouldn't. I'm not a Heisman voter, but if I were, um, we know people like Brent Beard that that have a Heisman vote. I know he waits until after championship Saturday. So that has something to do with it uh, as well. But I think there's certainly a lot more intrigue uh, about that race following Saturday's outcomes uh, than there was uh, going into it. And, you know, I I don't know who had an easier weekend, Chase, Notre Dame or Clemson. Clemson had to play, um, but it it wasn't much of a challenge for the Tigers. And uh, meanwhile, Notre Dame gets the third slot in the CFP while uh, sitting on the couch, which – you know, Alabama can certainly relate to after last year. Yeah, Notre Dame versus Clemson in uh, the Cotton Bowl semifinal. That'll be a 3 p.m. kickoff Central Time on uh, the 29th. Travis JV game. Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I, I just I don't see Notre Dame hanging in that game at all. Uh, and, you know, and, it almost feels like Clemson got rewarded as the two seed by getting the six seed. Maybe. You know, <laughs> really. Yeah. I mean, I mean because I think if you if you check with Vegas anyway, uh, Notre Dame, I believe, would be a, a, an underdog to not only the other three teams that actually made the field, but also Georgia and also Ohio State, you know. Um, so he, the interesting aspect of, of the matchups, too, was, was the, the venue designation um, for the games. You know, Alabama getting sent to South Florida. Uh, to get it away from a potential really home-sided, home-field advantage for Oklahoma there in Dallas. Another aspect of that that I thought of, too, was that instead of getting Kyler Murray and that Oklahoma offense on turf there inside uh, in, in, at Jerry World, now you get them on grass outdoors. That might be a benefit to Alabama um, in that matchup. But uh, kind of how they went about dispersing the teams uh i think the alabama fan base so much and another bit of irony even though it is sort of an oklahoma stronghold i think the alabama fan base would have preferred to have gone to dallas i don't think that oklahoma there, I, there's no way oklahoma i don't think would would run the ball against alabama as well as georgia but that being said based on the way from uh performed against this alabama defense uh, there's no reason to think Kyler Murray isn't going to do a lot of damage. Uh, and, and I know, you, you look, when Nick Saban gets this long layoff, this four-week layoff before a, a championship game, a playoff game, what have you, I, sometimes those defenses make quick turnarounds and strong turnarounds over that long layoff. I've seen it happen. Uh, that being said, uh, Murray is just, uh, so dangerous with his feet on top of being able to throw it effectively. And, and you know, you got the, the Hollywood Brown kid on the outside who's who's extremely explosive. Um, it It's going to be – it's it's going to be a high-scoring affair, I think. And, and the uh, Murray-Tungavaloa matchup itself, uh, just to see those two head-to-head, is, is going to be a ratings driver, I think. Oh, no doubt about it. That's why that's going to be your primetime game. I mean, for for Notre Dame to play in the early game on semifinal day, you had to have that type of dynamic uh, quarterback situation, and that's what the game's going to have. Let me ask you this, though. When you think about Alabama's injury situation on defense, Isaiah Bugs is going to be far healthier. 
Terrell Lewis comes into play, Chase, yeah. as a as an edge defender. That's got to help, doesn't it? Um, just Alabama's health in general, specifically to the defensive side of the ball. What do you what do you think about that helping Alabama from well, that perspective? Well, and, and that's kind of part of what goes into the improvement that you, that you see sometimes over the over the longer layoff, right? Uh, you just know, last year against Clemson. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, so, sometimes sometimes getting healthy can can make that kind of difference. And I think in some ways uh, it, it can help a defense more than it can help an offense. Uh, and, you know, Oklahoma's dealing with a big-time injury situation with Marquise Brown, potentially, too. Hollywood, they call him, Chase. Yeah, Hollywood Brown. Uh, and the foot injury he sustained on Saturday against Texas, that's going to be one to keep an eye on. I know ESPN, during the selection show on Sunday, I believe it was Reese Davis, uh, reported that you know the feeling is that he'll be good to go, but Lincoln Riley and sort of uh, a teleconference after the selections were made uh, used the word hopeful that uh marquise hollywood brown casting doubt go. casting yes. a little a little cloud yes. in there you know just so people uh-huh. can't see as good i know uh, that's right <laughs> yeah and, and you know he's he's their new he's the new dd westbrook in that program oh, yeah. basically and and, uh, and you know what those injury reports for teams on that cfp bubble they tend to be a little more honest <laughs> once they get in the playoff yeah you know than before you know because they don't want to give that cellcom any doubt or any reason to think they're going to be weakened if they make the field now once they get in the field oh well we're they go from oh yeah he'll he'll be ready to well we're hopeful he'll be ready setback setback narrative narrative changes once they get locked in yeah once they get those once they get those confirmation numbers for that trip yeah that's great. That is going to do it for this edition of the Talking Tide podcast. Stay with us here over the course of the month. We'll be uh, uh, obviously we'll be previewing the CFP when that comes closer to time. Although uh, you never know when breaking news or Alabama basketball or who knows what else might uh, uh, compel us to hop back on sooner. But uh, uh, looking forward to it for sure, Travis. The college football playoff: Alabama, Oklahoma, Clemson, Notre Dame. Uh, your matchups, and uh, we will be on top of it. Talk to you next time right here on Talking Tide.